Sweet. Well, hi, guys. I am so glad that you all are here tonight. I feel like it's been an eternity since we got together in this capacity. Um, but I know it was just last month that we were together. Um, so I'm excited for tonight. Um, Brennan mentioned it already, um, that we're continuing in our three-part series looking at Micah 6.8, um, where we get three commands from God um, that Micah the prophet gives to us, um, gives to the people he's originally writing to, but we can um, learn from it as well today. And so I'm going to continue in um, this series, but first let's look at that verse just to remind ourselves what we're looking at. So Micah 6.8, the last part of it says, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And so last week, Pastor Ben, or last week, last month, uh, Ben went through what it looks like to act justly, what that means, and he um, went to the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 5, which is probably arguably the most famous sermon of all time. It's one of Jesus's big ones where he teaches um, the people, and he teaches against systems of oppression that they were facing. He teaches them how to live in a world where they are stuck in cycles of violence, um, and it gives them this hope, this new way to deal with those things that they're experiencing. Um, And Ben was able to even apply it back to some of what we're experiencing right now of these systems of oppression, these um, cycles of violence that we still see in our world today. And so I'm going to continue in going into this second requirement, the second commandment of this, which is to love mercy. And for me, when I was looking up um, just stuff about this verse, which you tend to do when you're going to teach something, you want to look up lots of resources, get lots of ideas, it helps you to formulate your own thoughts. Um, I found that it was really hard to find stuff that was specifically about this requirement. Um, It tends to get lumped in with the first to act justly because they go really closely together. Um, But I was, as I was reading through all this stuff, I was like, why is no one spending as much time on this idea to love mercy as they are on to act justly because I think that it really sets the foundation for us to be able to truly act justly. Because what Micah does here, what God speaks here, is he gives us a call to an action to act justly, but he also wants us to have a heart posture as well, which is to love mercy. And so that's what we're going to get into tonight, this idea of loving mercy. And I want to start with this thought that will tie into what Pastor Ben did last month. It's this idea that to do is important but it's not enough. We must get to the heart and learn to love mercy. So that's where we're going to kind of start tonight. And I am the type of person that I love to understand how things work. Like I like to know all the ins and outs of how things function. And so I will get like really into something and want to learn about it and figure it out. And so lately I've been really into puzzles and not just like tabletop, like jigsaw puzzles, like the little boxes where you have to like hit the right sequence of buttons and like tap it on the table so many times for you to like unlock this secret compartment and I've probably spent hours just like watching videos of this guy trying to figure out these puzzles. Um, But so for me I love to understand how things work and so I really love studying the Bible. And I think that there's a difference between studying the Bible and reading the Bible. And both are good, and as Christians, we should do both. But studying the Bible takes another step of, I'm not just going to read this and pick out what's easy or what's applicable, but I'm going to really get into the depth of this. And so there's lots of things you can do when you are studying the Bible uh, that I, I enjoy to do. I like to do word studies. So you look at, you know, this word that we have in our English, what was that originally in the Hebrew or the Greek? Um, you can look at, like, what was the context this was written in, like, who wrote it, who 
were they writing to? Why is that important? What was happening in their culture? Why does that influence what this person wrote? Um, there's different genres of writing in the Bible. There's some narrative. There's some like historical account. There's some poetry, some letters, all kinds of stuff. And so I love digging into this stuff and trying to glean as much as I can because for me, understanding some of the backstory and how it all works and how it came to be helps me, I think, to really understand and then be able to um, apply what I'm learning um, into my own life today. And so as I was looking at Micah 6.8, I did a word study, which there's resources for how to do this, but you go through and you can see all the Hebrew or the Greek, this is Hebrew, um, Greek words for each of the word and how it's transcribed um, into English. And so the reason that this is maybe important, maybe you're saying, why does that matter, is because if you have ever studied another language or if you're bilingual, you'll understand that languages are vastly different and literal translations often don't make sense because um, vocabulary words can be different. There's some words that may exist in another language that have no direct translation into English. How we do grammar is different. There's cultural implications for how things work, how they function. And so I was getting into a word study on Micah 6.8 and looking at what's, what are some of these Greek or Hebrew words in this. And I found this word, the word for mercy, the section to love mercy, is the word kased. And it's Hebrew. And the, this word, as I looked at it, can be translated to all of these different English words, which is like, they're all similar, but they're a little bit different. So that's kind of confusing. And this word kased is used in the Bible in these various forms, like 245 times or something like that. And when I saw this word, for me, it triggered a memory because I've studied this word before. I've done a word study for class on this. And this word, when I was studying it for class, was in the book of Jonah. And I was thinking, oh, that's interesting that this word is in the book of Jonah, and now it's here in Micah again. And as I reflected on it, I had this realization that the story of Jonah itself is actually a perfect story of what to love mercy looks like, but also what it doesn't look like. And so that's what we're going to dive into tonight. But before that, I want to give a little bit of a definition of this word cassette, a little bit more than just what those various um, translations are. And so this word, when it's used in the Bible, is used in two instances. First, it's either used to talk about a characteristic of God. So God's nature, who he is, he is merciful. I think we can probably say, okay, we know that. But then also it's used um, to talk about something that God's calling us to, like in Micah 6, 8, a characteristic that we're supposed to adapt to take on an action that we're going to take. And so um, I also want to make a distinction between mercy and grace. So Brent, if you want to throw that one up. We throw these words around together a lot. We say mercy and grace, mercy and grace. And up until like a year ago, I didn't honestly know what the difference was. And maybe you don't either. Uh, but there is a subtle difference. And so grace is getting what we don't deserve. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if uh, someone just spontaneously, randomly gives you a gift, it's not your birthday, there's no reason for it, they just give it to you because they love you, that can be an example of grace. Um, and then mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And so we, like, the most common example of this is, like, Jesus dying on the cross. Like, the Bible says that our punishment for our sin is death. And so for Jesus to die on the cross, take on all of our sins, is an example of mercy that we don't get what we do deserve. And so tonight, as we look at the story of Jonah, as we dive into a little bit of what it looks like to love mercy, we're going to keep that um, definition in mind as we read through this story um, and get into it. 
So, Jonah. Um, If you are familiar with this story, I'm just going to give a quick synopsis of the first three chapters of Jonah, just get through kind of the narrative part of it, so that we can get into the actual examples of loving mercy. And so, Jonah, he's a prophet of God, just like Micah, this book we're reading. And if you don't know, a prophet is a person who gets to hear the voice of God, who gets to have direct communication with him. And then his job then is to go and to tell a specific people group or wherever God sends him the word that God has given him. That's his job. So you could assume that Jonah is this, you know, devout Jewish man, like he loves God, he's doing what God has desired for him to do. And then we get this story of Jonah, and this is all we know about his life. Um, And God right away gives Jonah this instruction to go to this place called Nineveh to tell these people that they're wicked and their sinful ways are going to be the death of them. They're going to be destroyed. And Nineveh, if you don't know anything about it, is like the worst place of the time. Like these are the worst people. They do the most like atrocious sins. They're in the most like violence and just like it's a bad place. And Jews would know like we do not associate with Ninevites. Like we do not um, go to Nineveh. Like we steer clear of that. We don't even want our name to like be anywhere near the word Nineveh. And so Jonah, knowing this, but also having this word from God, he's affected by this narrative that exists about Nineveh. And he chooses to, he's like, I'm not going. I, Nineveh's a bad place. These are bad people. I'm not going to go. So we get this story of him fleeing. He runs away. He's going to sail to this place called Tarshish, which is like as far away you can get the wrong direction. And God is obviously angry because Jonah has been given a job, a commandment. And he sends this great storm to destroy the ship, to shipwreck them. Um, Long story short, Jonah gets thrown off the boat um, as a way of like alleviating the God that is bringing this calamity on them. And God sends this large fish to swallow Jonah whole, and he sits in this fish for three days. And what happens next is I think something really beautiful is that the third chapter of the book of Jonah is just this prayer that Jonah prays to God where he owns his own brokenness, he owns his own sinfulness, his disobedience. And he says, God, I'm sorry, I repent. If you save me from this, I will go and I will do what you have called me to do. And so God, this is our first instance of where mercy comes into play. God is merciful, and so he saves Jonah. He has the fish spin him out on land. And Jonah has given this um, example of mercy and what it looks like to love mercy. And so Jonah has made this promise. He's going to go to Nineveh. He's going to do what God's asked him. God gives him the call again, and he goes to Nineveh. And he preaches for 40 days, and he tells all the people the destruction that's going to come to them because of their sinful ways and the things that they've been doing. And what's really wild about this story is usually like after Jonah comes out of the fish, like in the Bible story we get as kids, it's like, oh, he got spit up on the land and he went to Nineveh, yay, that's the end. But there's like two, like a chapter and a half after of so much that happens that we don't really ever get into. And so Jonah's in Nineveh, he goes, he preaches for 40 days, he tells them what's going to happen, and all of the people are just wrecked. Like, they know that God is speaking through Jonah. They are hearing God's voice. They're recognizing their sinfulness, their brokenness, and they start to fast and pray. And the king himself comes down and mandates this and says, we're going to do this. We've dishonored God. We can't keep going on in this way. We're going to be destroyed. And they start to pray and ask God, if you will forgive us, uh, we repent of our sins. If you will save us, we will turn from our ways and we will be better people. And again... God is merciful because that's who who he is. It's his characteristic. And he saves them, all of the people. And that's like 
an awesome story, like the worst of the worst. Like I don't know who you would equate as the worst of the worst in like times today, but like for some reason when I think of Nineveh, I think of like Las Vegas and like all the like crazy stuff that happens there. And just imagine like if all the people in Las Vegas just all of a sudden like turned to God, like how wild would that be? So this is like a really big deal that the people of Nineveh have turned from their horrible ways, are coming back to God, and God has shown his mercy yet again, twice already. We get this perfect example of what mercy is, of what loving mercy looks like. But meanwhile, while this is happening, Jonah is doing something very drastically different. While God is saving like 120,000 people, Jonah is mad. He's pissed off. And so when we drop in to chapter four, we're gonna read some of this because this is where we're gonna get into the bulk of this idea to love mercy. So Jonah chapter four, starting in verse one, says this. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's where that word kased comes in that I was talking about earlier. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen. So Jonah's mad. Like, he wanted the people of Nineveh to be destroyed. He went and sat outside the city, like made a shelter, set to watch, prepared to watch all these people die, be destroyed. And like, that's what he wanted. That's what he thought they deserved. He's mad. Even though he's done what God asked him to do, he didn't want them to live. And he wanted them to get what they deserved. He didn't want them to be shown mercy. Continuing on in verses 6 through 11. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you do not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? So God immediately, he just calls out Jonah. He's like, hey, you care more about this plant, which you didn't plant, you didn't tend to, you didn't water, you didn't care for at all. You care more about the fact that this plant died because you're selfish and it provided for you than you do for 120,000 people who I created in my image, who I love, who I cherish, and who I desire for you to have a heart for. He calls him out. Like he uh, one-ups, I feel like Jonah's like dramatic. Like Jonah's like, I just wish I was dead. This is the worst. And God's like, hey, like, You don't get this. You're missing the point. And I think right there we get this perfect depiction, this perfect distinction between loving mercy and not loving mercy. God who's merciful loves, and even though these people have done the worst of things, he still chooses to save them, to extend mercy, to show it 
um, to them. And Jonah, meanwhile, is like, nope, they're the worst. Let them die. All 120,000 of them. And I think that as we look at the story of Jonah, we can see the difference of these two. And the reason that I look at this story and that I see so much in it is that it shows us that our capacity to love mercy is directly proportionate to our understanding of how much mercy we ourselves need. Like, Jonah was shown mercy, and yet he still didn't get it. Like, he still couldn't show mercy to others. And I think for us, too, like, for us to be able to be people who really say, I truly love others, I truly want the best for them, we have to wrestle with the own brokenness, the own sinfulness in our own lives, and be willing to say, hey, like, before I can give mercy to other people, I need to realize the mercy that God has given me. Not a single one of us is without sin. Not a single one of us is deserving of the grace um, that we've been given or the mercy that God gives us. In, in fact, all of us deserve the death. We deserve the distance from God. Uh, we deserve the punishment for our sins because of what we've done. But we get to praise God that because he is a God of mercy, because he is the God of mercy and grace, that that's not our story that that's not what we get because Christ came and died on the cross for us, took on all of our sins, something he didn't really have to do, taking that on, showing us mercy and giving us grace and giving us the option of an eternal life in heaven and a life here on earth as well. I love Ephesians 2 that further kind of clarifies this for us. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And it is by grace you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realm in Jesus Christ. God sees our transgressions, our sins, and chooses to extend mercy to us anyway. And the reason that I think that this is so pertinent to what we're experiencing in our world right now is that I think that our world today needs more people who love mercy, who truly want the kindness, the goodness, the best for people around them. And that starts with the heart change. As people in general, I think we've lost the ability to see people as people. Like we forget that people are created in God's image, that every single person on this earth, both alive and to yet be born and and gone before, is one that's created in God's image, that's loved and cherished by him. And we don't often extend the benefit of the doubt to others or recognize that people are experiencing hurt and pain too. And a lot of that hurt and pain of what people are experiencing fuels how they interact with us and how they function with us. And when we take that into consideration, have empathy for them, realizing that there's probably a reason that they do bad things or that they hurt us or that they continue to sin and are able to walk alongside them in that, that then we're able to begin to love mercy. We prefer uh, to see those that oppose us destroyed. Like I really, I think when we say it bluntly like that, we're like, oh, I don't really, I don't really want the people who think different than me to be destroyed. But I think that that's evident in how we talk or how we post on social media sometime. Over the last couple months, I've seen so many posts of people saying things like, well, they deserve the consequences because they are or they did X, Y, and Z. Um, Or if they're going to make that decision, like take that action, like they deserve what they're going to get to them. And that might be true. 
that, that very well may be true, but what God, as he calls us to love mercy, he wants us to change our language and change our heart posture, to begin to say things like, um, they may deserve the consequences of X, Y, or Z, or whatever they did, but instead, I will choose to not give them what they deserve. I'll show them mercy, and instead, I'll give them what they don't deserve, which is grace. And so going back to my very first point at the beginning, to do is important, but it's not enough. We must get to the heart and love mercy. Because it can be really kind of easy to do nowadays. Like I can sign petitions, I can post pictures to bring awareness, I can even have, you know, maybe conversations or stand up when I see something bad happening, but if my heart's not truly in that moment, my actions can be mediocre at best because you're still doing something and that's what Jonah does like he goes to Nineveh he does what he's called to do he shows justice to the people that are there but he doesn't have mercy and we can make that exact same mistake to love mercy means that my heart should be to see all people treated as precious loved and treasured children of God that my heart is broken for the people around me and I truly desire them the best for them This requirement from God delivered through Micah and loving mercy is to genuinely hope that the people we think deserves mercy the least would experience the transforming power of the love of God. Often in the church, I hear this statement of love the sinner, hate the sin. And we hear that all the time. You've probably said it. I've said it before. Um, And just a week or so ago, when we had our Oasis small group on Monday night, as we're going through the Jesus Way book, if you haven't been following along, Ben posed this kind of challenge to us that's really kind of wrecked me over the last couple days. He said, Jesus accepted the sinner and bore the sin. Like Jesus doesn't condone the sin. He doesn't say, okay, it's fine, keep on sinning. But he also doesn't condemn the sinner. He calls out the sin and he challenges the sinner. And there's so many instances in the New Testament where we see that to be how Jesus lives out, how what he does, which was contradictory to what the culture was telling him to do. In the story of the woman at the well, this woman who's um, had multiple husbands, who's living with a man who's not her husband, she's an outcast in society, the people like, have pushed her away because she's sinful, she's broken. Like, not only does Jesus meet with her, which was a big deal first of all, but he calls out her sin, he says, hey, this is wrong, but then he also provides for her needs. He says, take this living water, go and drink and thirst no more and turn away from your sins. He does the same thing again with the woman who's caught in adultery. This woman who's caught in the act of adultery, brought before the religious leaders. They're like, we're going to stone her. That's her punishment for what she's done. And Jesus says, if any of you without sin, throw the first stone. And they have to leave. But then what Jesus does with this woman, and he says, hey, you've sinned. And you know that, obviously. So go and sin no more. And then there's stories of different tax collectors. We get Zacchaeus, who, you know, was like, a thief, people hated him, Jesus has dinner with him, sits down, gets to know him, is in relationship with him, and through that encounter, Zacchaeus has a repentant moment where he says, I know I've sinned against you and I've sinned against other people and I'm going to return to the poor what I've stolen from them. And there's many, many other stories that we could just go on and on and on of, this, of that being the story where Jesus calls out people's sin, he says, hey, this is wrong, but you know what, because of my mercy and my grace, You get another chance, and I'm going to let you go on and continue to live, but choose to sin no more. And so, as we kind of wrap up, this idea that 
of to love mercy, it's a process. It's a heart change that will lead to us to be able to, to live out, to have actions that reflect that heart within us. And I think three key ways that we can begin to develop this heart posture is to first wrestle with our own sinfulness, wrestle with our own brokenness, wrestle with the amount of mercy and grace that we've received from God that he continually gives us, and then to examine our own hearts to see where we don't have the heart for people like God does. Another thing that Ben challenged us in that same um, small group was to ask the question, who are the people in your life that you tend to avoid? The people that's like, I don't really want to associate with them. Who are the Ninevites that you kind of in your life? And it can be different for each one of us. Who are those people that you stray away from? And then ask the question, why? And ask, how do I begin to bear their sins, to come alongside them, to help them, to say, hey, you can go and sin no more. And so I'm going to leave you with a couple of reflection questions as Katie comes up um, to finish off tonight as we just worship God. Two questions that I think that will help us to wrestle with this and begin to ask the question of what loving mercy looks like this week. Um, so first, have you wrestled with the mercy that you have been given from God? And then second, in light of how Jesus accepted the sinner and bore the sin, who do you choose to avoid and why? Can you learn to love that person and bear their sins? And so I give you this challenge as we continue to look at this Micah 6-8 passage um, to say we can act justly and we're called to do that as Christians in our world to show that to other people. But that may begin in our own hearts to say who are the people that I avoid, who are the people that I stray away from that I don't really care what happens to them. I want to see their destruction. Wrestle with that question. I've been wrestling with it this week um, and it's been really kind of eating me up because I have un- Uh, I think even recognized bias sometimes against certain people, whether that be something that they continually do that's wrong, that I have a hard time interacting with, or just people that make me feel uncomfortable for whatever reason. And how do I step out of my comfort zone as a Christian to begin to desire to see mercy for that person and where they are and what they're experiencing? So let me pray for us before we continue in worship. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for tonight. We thank you that we get to have the, the option to continue to meet um, throughout the summer. We thank you how you um, have continued to, to protect each one of us um, in the midst of all the things that are going on, that we have the safety and, and the freedom to come here tonight. I pray that um, as we go from this place, that wherever the communities that we go into, God, would you begin to break our hearts for those people that we interact with who are far from you, who are distant from you who continue to sin and may even not even know who you are. I pray that you would give us hearts and desires um, to be your love, to show your grace, to give people gifts that they don't deserve, and to show your mercy and not give people what they maybe do deserve. And so I just pray that as we go this week that you would be with each one of us, you protect us, you continue to reveal your presence to us in the midst of all the things that we do because we know that that you go with us um, if we've chosen to, to live lives to honor you and chosen to be led by you. And so I just pray um, for every single person in this room for their protection this week, that you would be with them, that you would lead and guide each and every single one of us. We thank you and we praise you for who you are and how you continue to love us and show us grace and mercy. It's in your heavenly name that I pray. Amen.